Hello, everyone. Welcome to part four of Reformation and the Arts. And as a reminder, uh, if you would have your laptop or your phone ready, so when we talk about some of these images, we can review them together. When we last left off, we were discussing Luther and his enfectung, his deep, deep melancholy and depression. A lot of this was probably brought on because of the continuing political stress and especially uh, the peasants' rebellion. But we'll pick it up at what is called the Diet of Augsburg in 1530. The Emperor Charles V has called this diet to discuss religious differences. Both Luther and his friend and sidekick, uh, brilliant theologian Philip Melanchthon, they both viewed Augsburg as the last attempt for any type of reconciliation. Melanchthon represented Luther and he produced a statement of faith which was later called the Augsburg Confessions. In a book by Perlove called Renaissance Reform and Reflections in the Age of Durer, Bruegel, and Rembrandt, he says, outlawed from the proceedings because of his excommunication, Luther took refuge in April 1530 at the Veste Coburg under protection of the Duke of Saxony. His six-month seclusion was a time of intense suffering. Separated from his wife and children, he endured headaches and angina ringing in the ears head colds and the flu so again Melanchthon is representing Luther at this famous diet of Augsburg but Luther dealt with the sufferings that he was going through by producing a commentary on the first 25 psalms called the Coburg Psalms. Luther really felt for his friend Melanchthon having to uh, go it alone. He wrote letters of comfort and encouragement from from Coburg. He was concerned about the hard stance, if you remember the man Jonathan Eck, that would continue to draw similarities between the Anabaptists and the Lutherans. And if going down that road, it dashed hopes for any reconciliation. Unfortunately, it was apparent that Augsburg would fail. Luther wrote to his friend Melanchthon, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous. Long enough have you had tribulation in this world. Look up. Lift your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. I shall canonize you as a faithful member of Christ. What greater glory 
do you seek? Luther's response to Melanchthon illustrates his growth in handling depression, uh, melancholy, or as we said before, infectum. One of the most superb images of dealing with infectung and depression and setbacks when it comes to uh, those in leadership or taking the arrows during this very volatile time. It's a fascinating image fascinating image the artist has an odd name he's called master i period b period and the name of the illustration is martin luther it was created in 1530 it's not very easy to find but i'm thinking that if you google uh, Master I.B. Martin Luther, 1530, and, and click images, you'll, you'll be there. This portrait, which I, I really hope you're able to pull up, is from 1530. It, it attempts to portray Luther's state of mind while he was in Coburg. Luther had come to grips with melancholy and depression and, and encouraged Melanchthon to press on for the cause of Christ. The inscription on the bottom of this image reads, In silencio et spe eret fortitudo vestra. The English translation reads, in silence and hope will fortitude be dressed. If you look at Luther's profile and, and look at his faith, both anxiety and peace coexist. Silence is shown by Luther's closed lips. Comments from contemporaries re refer to Luther's eyes. Nicholas Seldnecker claimed that Luther's eyes had a fiery, burning sparkle, and Melanchthon described them as brown with golden rings around the edges like the eyes of an eagle or man of genius. If you look on the right side of Luther's face, you see it. It is showing the results of depression and stress and melancholy. The left side of his face looks a, a little bit more calm. So that is, that is an illustration of the, the two emotions that Luther was dealing with at this time. At, at one time, at, at, on one side, a feeling of peace and assurance that I'm going down the right road. This is something that needs to be done. And on the right, the cost of doing what he feels is the right thing and the 
physical toll uh, that it will take on you. One of the things that assisted Martin Luther with his infectung and depression was someone named Catherine von Bora that was written into his story. She became an unexpected gift of grace. Here's what happened. In 1523, Luther smuggled 12 nuns. They were hidden in a pickle barrel. And Luther felt responsible for these, some of these nuns losing their job, and, and he wanted to make sure each found a good husband. And all were matched, those that were smuggled out, except one, Catherine von Bora. Luther decided to marry Catherine at the age of 42. He gave three reasons. To please his father, to spite the Pope and the devil, and to seal his witness for martyrdom. Katharina and Luther had six children, Hans, Elizabeth, Magdalena, Martin, Paul, and Margaretha. In addition, Luther and Katharina took in sick and orphaned in their cloister. Luther's students would gather around the table at their home, gather around the dinner table, and these conversations were taken by students and they were recorded shorthand in German and Latin. The students would sit and talk to Luther and they would listen to Luther along with any of his guests. Those conversations can be read today in a book called Table Talk. In this book, Table Talk, you can relive these conversations and Luther's answers to his students. Now, Luther who got married in order to testify to faith, surprisingly found a home and did more than any person to determine the tone of German domestic relations for the next four centuries, said Roland Banton in his biography. The family was one of healthy relationships with little room for individuality. And despite the hectic nature of family late in his life, getting married at the age of 42 for reasons really not related to love, Luther fell deeply in love with Catherine von Bora. And home was a place of great consolation and joy. It was a tough life. 
you remember we were talking before about Luther's publications and tracts being sold all over uh, Germany and beyond a remarkable number of publications sold. Luther received little or no financial rewards from his publications. So money was always a problem. You can see a, a really good portrait of Catherine von Bora. It is by Lucas Cranach, C-R-A-N-A-C-H. We've talked about him before. If you would Google Lucas Cranach, Catherine von Bora, 1526, you will see a picture of the one of 12 that Luther smuggled in a barrel from a monastery. Roland Batten's biography includes a heartwarming letter that Martin wrote to his own son. This letter written by a father who was who didn't who, who was not a father until late in life is, is really a piece of art. I'd like to read it to you. Again, this is the letter from Luther to his four-year-old son. My dearest son, I am glad to know that you learn well and pray hard. Keep on, my lad, and when I come home, I'll bring you a whole fare. I know a lovely garden where many children in golden frocks gather rosy apples under the trees as well as pears, cherries, and plums. They sing, skip, and are gay, and they have fine ponies with golden bridles and silver saddles. I asked the gardener who were these children, and he said, they are the children who like to pray and learn and be good. And I said, good man, I too have a son, and his name is Hans Luther. Couldn't he come into the garden too and eat the rosy apples and the pears and ride a fine pony and play with these children? And the man said, if he likes to pray and learn and be good, he too may be welcome into the garden. And Lippus and Jost, they were the sons of Melanchthon as well. And when they all come together, they shall be given a golden whistles and drums and fine silver crossbows. But it was early and the children had not yet had their breakfast, so I couldn't wait for the dance. I said to the man, I will go at once and write all this to my dear son Hans, that he may work and work hard, pray well and be good, so that he too may come into this garden. But he has an Aunt Lena he'll have to bring too. That will be all right, said he. Go and write this to him. So my darling son, study and pray hard and tell Lippus and Jost to do this too so that you may all come together into the garden. 
May the dear God take care of you. Give my best to Auntie Lena and give her a kiss for me, your loving father, Martin Luther. On the morning of February 18th, 1546, Lucas Fornagel, a local artist, was called in to execute a painting of a dead man. It was Luther. He was called in to depict the look, the look on Luther's faith, face upon the hour of his death. The portrait was intended to display not only to the family and friends, but above all to posterity, the countenance of a blessed death. And you can discover this portrait if you would go to Lucas Fortnagel, that last name is spelled F-O-R-T-N-A-G-E-L, Portrait of Dead Luther, 1546. Philip Melanchthon was lecturing on the book of Romans when he, see, when he received word of Luther's death. Melanchthon broke down in class, and after a while, he gained his composure. And his first words were a quotation from 2 Kings 2.12. The charioteer of Israel has fallen. Roland Banton, in considering the legacy of Martin Luther, said the most profound impact of Luther on his people was their religion. His sermons were read to the congregations, his liturgy was sung, his catechism was rehearsed by the father with the household, his Bible cheered the faint-hearted and consoled the dying. Paul Tillich connected Albrecht Durer's night, death, and the devil with Luther's legacy. Take a moment and discover this famous woodcut. It is from 1513. Albrecht Durer, D-U-R-E-R. The name is Night, Death, and the Devil. Take a moment moment and review from left to right, up and down. What do you see? Do you notice that a knight is fearlessly pressing ahead though he is surrounded by death and the devil? He is alone, but he is not lonely. He is looking ahead with confidence. Luther's courage of confidence is 
a personal confidence derived from a person-to-person encounter with God, discovering God through Christ, through faith, in Christ through faith. Throughout his life, he discovered that neither popes nor the councils could give him this confidence. Therefore, he had to reject them just because they relied on a doctrine which blocked off the courage of confidence. They sanctioned a system in which the anxiety of death and guilt was never completely conquered. There was always another good work, a good deed to do. How much was enough? And when Luther discovered the grace of God, he said it was like he went into the gates of heaven. Paul Tillich in The Courage to Be says, when the Reformation removed the mediation and opened up a direct, total, and personal relationship to God, a new non-mystical courage to be was possible. It is manifest in the heroic representatives of fighting Protestantism. Finally, let's look again to the little details of this woodcut. Again, notice the knight's face. He is looking ahead. The devil is in the back of the horse trying to tempt him to get him off track. Death is to his right holding up an hourglass saying to him, no matter what you attempt, it will be for nothing. I am your fate. Time will run out. At the horse's feet, there is a skull. Death is riding an emaciated horse. But here's what I want you to notice. If you look at the top of the woodcut, you see a castle, you see a kingdom, the city of God, if you will. And the path winds through the forest and the trees. It is not a straight path. It is winding with many detours and valleys, and the night is determined to look straight ahead and not get off course and tempted by death or the devil. He will look ahead because he knows where the end of his story, where the end of your travel, his travel lies. The last portrait of Luther was drawn by his valet. And in a book belonging to Melanchthon, the following words were added by Philip Melanchthon. 
and we'll close with these words. Dr. Martin Luther, Alive I was your plague, O Pope, dead I shall destroy you. He died in the year 1546. He lived for 63 years. The 64th year was the year of his death. It was the 18th of February when he encountered death. At night between 2 and 3 o'clock on the 22nd of the month, he was buried in the Castle Church in Wittenberg. He is dead. Yet. He lives. Thank you for joining, and I look forward to part five to come.